a broken back, madness and murder when mentors were brutally slain, death at the hands of an inhuman monster, a hand chewed off by piranhas, death in a plane crash, a job at Taco Bell? The early 1990s were not a good time to be a superhero at DC Comics. Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1970s and 1990s, as well as Jim Shooter Conversations, all available at Amazon.com, your favorite online retailer, your favorite book retailer, or your local comic shop. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. DC superheroes are among the most iconic characters in the world. The recent success of the Aquaman and Wonder Woman movies show the power in the original concepts that drive these characters, and characters like Superman, Batman, and Green Lantern especially have grown iconic. It's become almost a cliché these days that each reboot of these characters is intended to return them to first principles, to the original thing that made them so special. But things were different in the early 1990s. At that point in history, the hero seemed old, used up, out of fashion. New characters like Bloodshot, Brigade, Wildcats, and Harbinger, not to mention Marvel's Mighty Mutant line, seem to represent a generational change, an opportunity to bring a new set of heroes for a new generation of comic book readers who no longer wanted to read about characters created decades earlier. The classic heroes were used up, old, kid stuff. So, what was DC's reaction to this perception? How did they aim to keep their heroes in the public eyes? Why, by doing terrible things to them, of course. They say suicide is a cry for attention, and it's hard not to see these attempts as a similar cry for attention. We will kill our heroes, and you will pay attention. You probably know about the death of Superman at the hands of Doomsday in late 1991. The Death of Superman trade is one of the most popular books in DC's backlist. An animated film has been made from it, and the image of Lois Lane mourning over the body of her slain husband has become one of the most iconic images from the 1990s. You may also know those comics sold unbelievably well, phenomenally well, ridiculously well, well, like two million copies well, like it lifted up the sales of spin-off and satellite books tremendously well. Media attention splashed on this storyline, and lapsed fans stampeded to the local comic shops to pick up copies. Superman comics had been selling in the lower half of DC's sales chart prior to the stunt. By the time Superman 75 came out showing the actual death, these comics sold in the millions. And hey, it was a good story, and Doomsday has become one of Superman's most iconic foes, and people were reminded of their love for the Man of Steel. I'll talk in a future podcast about the death and return of Superman, fascinating story that deserves its own show, both in front of and behind the comics page. And that's all good. The popularity of the character, the increasing interest in it, was all good. It it got people coming into the comic shops, it got people talking about comics, except that it made clear in the minds of DC executives that if they could gain this much attention killing Superman, they should consider doing nasty things to other top mainline characters in order to attract attention. While 1992 was the year in which Superman was killed, 1993 was the year in which Batman was broken, literally. One of the most significant events in Batman history was conceived in late 1991, when the buzz of the death of Superman was growing, when editor Denny O'Neill led an off-site brainstorming meeting of the Batman creative teams where he proposed a radical idea, Bruce Wayne's retirement as the Cape Crusader. According to Batman writer Doug Mensch, Denny's original idea was to show Batman losing his stuff and getting burned out, with the whole process culminating with Bruce Wayne taking a big loss and then retiring. 
Feeding off that idea, Detective Comics writer Peter Milligan then suggested a different character could become DC's new Dark Knight. O'Neill relished the opportunity to explore what it meant to be Batman, so he and his creators coordinated an epic storyline that would reach an astonishing climax in 1993. As the drama of Superman's death played out, the Batman comics provided several indications that similarly big changes would happen soon to DC's other most iconic hero. First, O'Neill, Joe Quesada, and Kevin Nolan collaborated on the four-issue Batman Sword of Azrael miniseries. The first issue cover dated October 1992, which introduced the intensely angry Jean-Paul Vallée, a.k.a. Azrael, an armored assassin serving a mysterious cult called the Order of Saint-Dumas. That globe-spanning miniseries involved Valet and Wayne, an action-adventure yarn that put the two men in an uneasy alliance because of their differing approaches to violence. Azrael's cavalierly violent methods placed him in opposition with a classic DC hero who refused to ever take a life. O'Neill next asked for a new villain who would prove to be Batman's equal, both physically and intellectually. That was a tall order as far as Robin writer Chuck Dixon was concerned. He doubted they could create anyone for whom uh, fans' interest and attention would be attended to. O'Neill appreciated that kind of skepticism and consequently tasked Dixon on creating the most memorable villain possible. The product of Dixon's efforts was a vicious criminal named Bane. As detailed in the 55-page one-shot Batman, Vengeance of Bane, January 1993, written by Dixon and drawn by Graham Nolan and Eduardo Barreto, Bane was born and raised in a prison in the fictitious Caribbean island of Santa Prisca, eventually becoming one of its most hardened and fearsome inmates. A group of scientists later injected Bane with an experimental steroid called Venom, which endowed him with superhuman strength and stamina. After escaping the prison, Bane travels to Gotham City in order to confront Batman, who he views as the manifestation of his deepest fears. As Dixon described him, Bane is an evil vision of Doc Savage and a screwed-up, crack-the-mirror version of Batman. Three months after Bane's introduction, the 19-issue Nightfall story arc began in Batman 493, continuing not only in that title, but also in Detective Comics and in the anthology Showcase 93. In order to distract Batman so he could increase his power in Gotham City, Bane blows up Arkham Asylum, freeing dozens of villains from the insane asylum. The Cape Crusader is forced to confront several of his nastiest foes, like the Mad Hatter, Scarecrow, the Joker, and Poison Ivy. As part of the battle, he discovers that Batman is really Bruce Wayne. Meanwhile, Robin recruits Razrael to help them. Eventually, Batman has to fight his way into Bane's inner circle, established inside Bruce's own home in Wayne Manor. Exhausted, the hero can barely lift his arms against his drug-enhanced nemesis. Finally, in Batman 497, July 1993, with Batman at his lowest ebb, the triumphant Bane lifts the hero of his needle with a loud crack, breaks Bruce Wayne back. One of comics' greatest heroes is crippled, and DC implied the injury was permanent. After more than 50 years in the suit, Bruce Wayne might no longer be able to walk, much less fight crime. The comics world was shocked by the events, and protege Jean-Paul Vallée promised vengeance. Three, years, or three issues later, after some experimentation with the old costume, Vallée assumes the mantle of Batman, but with a very different cape and cowl. Jean-Paul Vallée's Batman armor 
as designed by Joe Quesada, reflected his relentless approach to fighting crime. It was a suit with incredible firepower built into it. Deadly weapons were literally at ballet's fingertips. It was a radical change to fit a new generation of comics readers. Uh, eventually, Bruce found his way back into the bat suit as Rael was shouted off to his own much-hated solo series, but not before everything was briefly ended up and a new extreme Batman of the 1990s was born. Nightfall was a hit, as many of its chapters received second and even third printings. Batman 500 had the honor of being Diamond Distributor's best-selling comic released in August 1993. Most importantly, as far as DC was concerned, lightning has struck twice. Fan interest in Batman surged as Nightfall and its sequel storylines flowed through 1993 and 1994, with Dick Grayson temporarily wearing the cape and cowl. It also showed that major changes to existing characters would goose sales in a major way and help spur massive fan interest. While Bruce Wayne had a challenging 1993, no character had a tougher year than Hal Jordan, a.k.a. Green Lantern, in 1994. In fact, his problem started in 1993, at the end of the reign of the Superman saga. That tale of the return of Superman includes a decisive chapter in Green Lantern 46, October 1993, in which the powerful Mongol utterly devastated Hal's hometown of Coast City in order to turn it into an enormous engine that will transform Earth into a war world. Hal hurries to his city, only to find it completely annihilated, and the voices of the dead crying out in his mind, Hal defeats Mongol in a titanic struggle, but the desolation of Coast City leads to the shattering Emerald Twilight story arc, beginning in Green Lantern 48, January 1994. A distraught Hal uses his ring to recreate Coast City and all the people he loves, restored from his memories. Seeking comfort, Hal visits with the ghosts of an old girlfriend and his parents. The serenity lasts barely a moment before Hal is confronted by the image of one of his mentors, the Guardians of the Universe, who reprimands Hal for using his power ring for personal gain. The Guardian further orders Hal to surrender his ring. Hal is driven so mad by this command that he journeys to Oa, the Guardian's home planet, to murder them. Fellow Green Lanterns attempt to stop him, but when Hal defeats them, he steals their rings. Then in Green Lantern 50, March 98, written by Ron Mars and drawn by Daryl Banks, Hal has become so powerful he is able to destroy Owa's central power battery, killing all the Guardians save one. Wearing a new costume, Hal streaks to the center of the galaxy, ready to wreak even more destruction. Readers would have to wait a few months for the publication of DC's big 1994 event comic, Zero Hour, to learn of Harold's next move. But in the meantime, the sole surviving Guardian, Gambit, visits Earth to find Hal Jordan's replacement. When he comes across a vain young artist, he declares, You shall have to do. He gives the young man a power ring, and with that, Kyle Rayner becomes the new Green Lantern. It was a controversial move, but the decision to replace Hal Jordan came from editor Kevin Dooley. When monthly sales of Green Lantern drop below 40,000 copies, Dooley concluded the comic book readers looked at Hal Jordan as a hero from a previous generation seemingly out of step with the types of protagonists demanded by fans in the 1990s. Dooley and DC's editorial team then considered several options to reviving the series before ultimately deciding to follow a recent DC pattern. The death of Superman and Nightfall had boosted the popularity of Superman and Batman comics by removing their title characters. A similarly radical change was needed to save Green Lantern from cancellation. 
To say the least, uh, longtime Hal Jordan fans disapproved of the plot twist, but as Dooley put it, he had few alternatives in the matter. As he said, would readers rather have had it stay the same and have the book be cancelled, or try something different, keep the book entitled with the essence of the character going? Dooley recruited Ron Mars to script the adventures of the new Green Lantern, an apt choice considering the writer's three-year-long tenure on Marvel sci-fi series Silver Surfer. Mars, however, had qualms about the assignment because it was a dramatic departure from the status quo. After mulling over Dooley's offer, Mars declined the opportunity to create a new Green Lantern. As Mars explained to me, the real trick, the real task, was creating a Green Lantern who could stand on his own and retain the audience in the wake of Hal giving up the mantle. The challenge was the attraction. And, without a doubt, Kyle Rayner was a completely different character than his Grey Temple predecessor. Neither fearless nor completely honest, Rayner was a deeply flawed young man, forced to learn skills on the job and mature into a true hero. Despite Daryl Banks providing Rayner with a flashy new costume that was more in line with the aesthetics of the times, fans were still slow to embrace the new Green Lantern in the aftermath of Hal Jordan's fall from grace. In fact, several fans upset with the course of events sent death threats to Mars on the mistaken belief he pitched Hal Jordan's return to evil and had it dictated to him by editorial fiat. In those pre-internet days, it was hard to get direct information about the uh, stories. Acceptance of Rainer, though, grew gradually, evolving out of the new status quo. Kyle had no Green Lantern Corps to help him, nor any experience in using his ring. In his early fights, Rainer often stumbled onto winning strategies. Sales picked up with Emerald Twilight, and for the remainder of the decade, Green Lanterns often sold in the month's 50 top comics each month. Though Rainer gained fans as he learned how to use his ring, the horrors in one issue angered many readers. In Green Lantern 54, August 1994, by Mars, Banks, and Derek Coyne, Rainer returns home after a battle to discover his girlfriend Alex murdered by a villain named Major Force. Making matters worse, Major Force had stuffed her body into a refrigerator. That cruel butchery became symbolic for a group of fans led by future comic writer Gail Simone. In 1999, Simone and her partners launched the website Women in Refrigerators in order to list the many ways women in adventure hero stories were killed, maimed, or injured as springboards for a male hero's success. Simone's intention with Women in Refrigerators was to create a safe environment for women to read comics. The site's commentary eventually provoked changes in the way the industry treated female characters. Green Lantern wasn't the only iconic DC hero to experience a dramatic transformation in 1994. Starting in Aquaman No. 1, August 94, writer Peter David, an artist Martin Eglin, and Brad Vancata delivered a shocking new tale on the King of the Seven Seas. Swimming out of the 1993 David-scripted Aquaman Time and Tide miniseries, the first arc of the ongoing concludes with a dreadful incident. Piranhas chewed off Aquaman's left hand while he grapples with the evil Charybdis. The hero is furious at the vicious attack and is betrayed by sea creatures. The symbol of that anger, he replaces his hand with a harpoon. With unkempt long hair and a bushy long beard, Aquaman's very appearance demonstrates his fierce new approach to life and incidentally influenced uh, Jason Momoa's uh, approach to creating the character on the big screen in 2018. Wow. Time flies. Um, The previous moribund protagonist now embodied the defiant 1990s attitude. 
Nonetheless, David had to persuade his editors to agree to his ideas for the series. He said, We had to show that we really had creative concerns in mind and that we weren't desperate to do something to goose sales. That dramatic change did capture fans' attention. Aquaman was no longer a has-been superhero. He was a formidable warrior who kicked as much butt as any other DC star. Wonder Woman went through her own set of changes in 1992 and 93. Changes that weren't quite as regal as the Atlantean monarch went through. Beginning with Wonder Woman 72, March 1993, Princess Diana found herself stuck in Boston, with Paradise Island shunted into a new dimension. Living in her friend's basement and without any real job prospects, the Princess of the Amazons, a woman who saved the world many times over, the servant of Greek gods and the friend of Superman and Batman, ends up working at Taco Wiz? This barely designed take on Taco Bell? Of course, she makes the most of the new job, inspiring her teammates and being the best Taco Wiz employee possible. But still, it was a dramatic calm down for one of the comic's most iconic heroines and a strange right turn from writer Bill Nestor Loeb's. But at least Wonder Woman wasn't dead. The Emerald Archer couldn't say the same thing by 1995. In Green Arrow, number 101, by Dixon and Rodolfo DiMaggio, Oliver Queen is aboard a crashing plane, left hand attached to a bomb. If he removes his hand, the bomb will detonate and destroy Metropolis. Superman offers to resolve the situation by severing Green Arrow's arm, ensuring the survival of both hero and city, and echoing the Archer's fate in 1986's Batman the Dark Knight miniseries. However, Queen couldn't stomach the idea of living the, entire, the rest of his life as an amputee, unable to wield his bow and arrow. Instead, he detonates the bomb before the plane reaches Metropolis, sacrificing himself in the process. In contrast with the grand funeral provided for Superman, whose death shook the world, the lower key Queen is remembered as a small wake in the back of Guy Gardner's bar. In the Bat Cave, Superman mourned his old friend. He lived the way he wanted to. I can only hope he, pat- he died the same way. With Oliver Queen's death, the legacy of the Green Arrow gets passed on to the next generation, his son Connor. And I'm only touching on changes to some of the most iconic heroes at DC. I'm not mentioning the huge number of reboots DC did for Power Girl, or the insane continuity twists Hawkman and Hawkgirl had to go through in order to somehow fit the pretzel logic of DC's complex web. And I'm not mentioning the continuing depression of the Justice League to the point where they were one of the lamest superhero groups ever. By the late 1990s, DC stopped savaging their heroes quite so much. Or did they? When Grant Morrison launched a JLA in 1997, he took care to have all of DC's most iconic heroes as his leads. There was Superman, who uh, soon turned into an energy creature. There was Batman, who uh, soon had to take care of a cataclysmic earthquake in Gotham City that led to its being a no-man's land. There was Wally West, who was dealing with his legacy, and Kyle Rayner at Sconce's Green Lantern, but struggling to fill his legacy. There was Wonder Woman, who was replaced by her mother for a time. (sighs) DC, you just didn't like heroes in the 1990s, did you? Oh, thank you.